Welcome to the Rocks Podcast. The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. All right, James chapter 4. Now, Father, as we make our way to this portion of Scripture for this morning's consideration, may your Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand to do your will. In Christ's name, amen. This, according to the New York Times archives, Two Soviet ships, a liner with 1,234 people aboard and a freighter carrying a cargo of oats, were supposed to pass in the night last week as they sailed in the Black Sea off the coast of southern Russia. Instead of passing one another, they collided, making the tragedy even greater. The authorities said that the captain's of both vessels knew for 45 minutes that they were on a collision course, but some sort of dispute developed about right of way, and both captains tragically, because life was lost, uh, ignored warnings. Neither one was willing to humble himself and yield to the other. Quote, I saw the freighter about to ram into our side, the pilot said. The engines were put into reverse, but it was too late. Within 15 minutes, the 17,000-ton, 525-foot liner sank so quickly that there was no time to launch lifeboats. The authorities said 398 people, all Soviet citizens, appeared to have drowned. 116 bodies were recovered. 282 passengers were listed as missing. Soviet authorities investigated and said that the guilt of both captains is, quote, undoubted. It was all about human ego, stubbornness, and pride. Pride, um, inflated ego, stubbornness, is as deadly on the open seas as it is on our freeways and at family gatherings and in congregations, Christian or no. As we've been seeing ever so clearly in the book of James, an open letter written inspired by the Holy Spirit through James uh, to some several misguided and hard-hearted and self-absorbed congregations filled with so-called believers but acting more like those crazed captains, so self-absorbed and arrogant um, than anything Christian. So these congregations, as we've been learning here and closing out chapter 3 and opening chapter 4, just filled with selfish ambition. And the Bible says, James told us, where you have selfish ambition, there you have disorder, confusion, and every evil practice. So when you have a me-first kind of attitude and you've worshipped at the unholy trinity's altar, me, myself, and I, nothing but chaos and death and uh, destruction comes from that. Those two captains caused a lot of chaos because of selfish ambition and pride. Now, James is a pastor And these are folks, some of them, who have been uh, in his congregation there in Jerusalem, now spread out throughout the Roman Empire, Jewish Christians, now um, in little congregations that are clearly off track. They're completely compromised, and James is a pastor's heart. He wants to fix it. 
So there are 55 imperatives. That's a word just that means short little commands to get right. If you want to think of James as the book about repentance, 55 ways to repent is the book of James. Whenever you feel like you're out of sorts with the Lord or you've drifted away or you need to get right with God, turn to James. He will put you right. 55 commands in short five chapters. And why? Because James has a heart of love. He wants them to be redeemed from the wreckage that their pride and self-centeredness has caused. They have wreaked havoc, not only in the lives of others, but their own lives were empty and frustrated and such a bad testimony of what being a Christian is all about. So he's going to help them repent. And in order to turn things around, they need to turn around, which is what the word in the Greek to repent actually means, a simple turn. That's all it takes To become saved. A turn. He says, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and you will be saved. Look to me, a turn. That's what it takes. Jesus did all the work that you could never do. If you could be good enough, my friend, then Christ's death was in vain. Why would Jesus have to suffer and die for you if you could have done it on your own good merits? We have a Savior So he wants them to turn around, and he's in the mode of here's how to get there. He's told them there's grace to conquer those deadly, lethal passions that rage within your fallen nature. There's a way. God will give you more grace, and that grace will make you successful, but there's a posture in which you need to live to get that grace. It's called humility. So you'll have to turn around, and now James is going to take that congregation and walk them down to the bottom floor where they'll be in the right posture to receive the grace of God. And once they receive the grace of God, then they can start to mend relationships and and get right with God in their own hearts and be uh, blessed. And so it's a road downward to repentance. Here, picking up at verse 7, where we left off. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That word there means two-souled, to have two people living inside of you. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think that's enough to consider for one morning. (laughs) Unless you want more, we can do more. But I think we'll stop there and we'll chew on those thoughts, as it were. There's plenty to talk about and to think about. Um, I went to the mall to get a pair of running shoes, and I went to the map. I forgot where those kinds of stores were at Santa Rosa Plaza there, and I went to the sign, and it says, you know, you are here, (laughs) and there's an X, and then there's a map to where you want to get going to. And I believe that James is now kind of putting out a map and saying, you are here and where you want to get is fixed and better and and right with God so that you can be satisfied in your Christian life to see your prayers being answered to feel the love of God to see God's favor and grace in your heart and life you are here and you want to get you think with your pleasures here but actually the elevator he directs you to has a down arrow He says, in order to go up in God's economy, you must first go below, go down, press the arrow downward. And so the elevator is in the down arrow position, and that is the place when you go there to find God's grace and humility and humbleness, you will 
As the Bible says, exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. Humble yourself and God will give you his grace and he will lift you up. The only way to get there and the only way anybody will ever be lifted up to heaven is to first to have been bowed on knee. There will be not one person in heaven who refused to bow the knee, period. For the Bible says, it is written, every knee will, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow and every tongue without exception will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No exceptions. Nobody's there. And one way or the other, they still bow. One will be forceful. One will be voluntary. The voluntary ones live forever. And so he, he really wants to... I mean, it's no fun talking about repentance. It's, it's not the funnest part of Christianity. It's a very needful part. But it's not something that we, you know, cut out the scriptures about repentance and put them on our refrigerator. We just, it's not, we, we would rather see Jeremiah 9, uh, what is it, twenty nine eleven. Thank you all, you all know it. <laughs> Why? Because it encourages us. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future, not to harm you. Oh, we love those, but where it says, you know, Come near to God, and that, that's fine. Wash your, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, two-faced. Grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter. Yeah, no, that's not going to be on my refrigerator. <laughs> Does it need to be on my refrigerator? Yeah, a lot of times. And so, you know, I, I don't know what it is about Memorial Hospital when I go there to do pastoral visitation. I get in that elevator, and nine times out of ten, I'm waiting to go up, and the thing goes down. And I go down, and it opens up to some cafeteria cart staring at me. I was like, oh, man. And listen, when you want to go up, and the Lord is saying, no, first you're going to have to go to the basement floor. Everybody rolls their eyes and goes, oh, this is a waste of time. I'm frustrated. I don't want to feel going down. I pressed up, and now I'm going down. And then it's embarrassing on top of all of that because you come back up, and the door's open, and the same people are standing there. You're like, oh, hi. <laughs> I just uh, had something to get out of the cafeteria real quick. <laughs> oh, got it. All right. So, no, it's not fun, but it's necessary. You know, chemotherapy, I went for a year and a half of chemotherapy eight years ago, nine years ago. Not a lot of fun. But there's kind of a joy knowing this is going to help me. So you can be frustrated and get a little queasy about repentance and, being, and having James say, Listen, you who have drifted away, I've got some hard words for you. Let it make you a little nauseous, but know this, the cancer is being taken care of, and you'll survive. There are three couplets that we're going to talk about, and maybe you see them. Uh, number one, submitting and resisting. Number two, coming near and washing up. And number three, grieving and changing. Those are the ideas that James gives us here in his text, and we're going to take a look at those three Couplets, all right? But before we dive in to the couplet number one, a quick shout out to what this trip downward is all about, finding God's grace. As I alluded to earlier, uh, the verse six right before, you'll remember from last week, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So James says, I know where the answer is. It's verse six right before verse seven. The answer to your problems in that congregation and ours, is grace. God's grace is important to have and into our hearts because we can't do anything without it. James realizes that you're going to need the grace of God, so he wants to help them get to humility so that they can be in the right place to get what they need. So 
Imagine that verse 6 that says that we talked about last week. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine that? To oppose the proud. Antetaso uh, in the Greek, it means to battle against, to resist, and to stand against. The bad news is to those who, like those crazed captains, who are the masters of their own destinies, who said, God, you know, I'll take you or leave you. When I'm about to die, I'll give you a little heads up. And then me and you, you know, we can make peace. And then everything be cool. You know what I'm saying? But God says, no, I don't think I do. God opposes the proud. He will set himself against that kind of person because they're not in the right position to receive his grace and love. And so the bad news is, is that he will set up barricades. He will send deterrence. He will increase the incline of your life. You know, I, I, I go to the gym and I, I like the tread uh, mill. I knew there was a word. And, and, and I, I do the incline, but a couple of times it gets a little carried away. You push it once, but it goes higher than you wanted. That thing just starts going up. You know what? The more your incline goes up, you're more tempted to what? Fall back, right? That's where he wants you. The proud person needs to be on their back because the proud person thinks they're fine. And so what James is saying is God will oppose you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you and he can't do a thing with you until you're down. And then you look up because there's only one place a person looks. There's only one direction when you're knocked out onto your back. It's up. So he says God will oppose you. You know, it's one thing to have a teacher who opposes you, who's out to get you. You know, you can't do anything right because the person, the teacher has it out for me. It's another thing if it's a spouse or, or a coworker or even a, a sibling. But can you imagine the living God, to have the living God, maker of heaven and earth, and say, I'm against you. Not a place that I want to be. 2 Samuel 22 says, To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Translated. Shoot straight with me, I'll shoot straight with you. Play games with me, I'll play games with you. P.S. You will lose. (laughs) So, yeah, he's trying to give the motivation. I want to get you to repentance. I'm I'm about to say some things that are going to upset you. We're going to have to press the down button on the elevator. You're going to be frustrated. But let me tell you, once you get there, that's where your help is. So we have to convince you to like the basement floor. That it's okay that you get there and he's going to walk you through. God may oppose the proud, but he will give grace to the humble. And that's the good news. The word for grace, charis, uh, it just means favor. He says, when you're down on basement floor, when you're like, God, I am so weak, I'm miserable, I'm helpless, I'm a sinner. He says, perfect. He gives you favor. The word means sweetness. It means sort of like God pulls strings for you. God uh, works in your corner. God is like secretly behind the scenes of your life, making everything go your way. That's what it means. And so now folks are like, well, maybe going to the basement floor isn't that bad. That's exactly what James and the Holy Spirit wants you to think. Why? Because he wants to bless you. He wants that end product of you getting the grace and him lifting you up. When you try to do it yourself and lift yourself up, he's only got one. You're giving him one alternative. So, as one writer said, the same Holy Spirit convicting us of our compromise will always grant us the grace to serve God as we should by this grace. But this grace only comes through being humble. 
So here we go, submitting and resisting the first couplet. Uh, two opposite thoughts, really, kind of funny. Give in and stand against. But it's the object that makes all the difference. So here's a paraphrase. Give in to God. Surrender your will to him. In the same breath, say no to the devil's prompts. Stand your ground in defiance to him. And he'll run away from you. So here's a simple thought. Amazing, though, that as we are fallen creatures, that we do it backwards. Can you imagine how stupid that would be to resist God and submit to the devil? Where do you think we learned that from? That would be our parents, Adam and Eve. Precisely what they did. Spiritual genetics being what they are. (laughs) We don't just, you know, pass on uh, our nose features and our eyes and our looks. But we pass on a lot more than that. And they passed on exactly this uh, to resist God and submit to the devil. God said, please don't. Any of the other ones, yes. But there's one, no, don't, line, don't cross. And they resisted that. And then another voice comes and says, come on. You know you want to. And they submitted to that. Got it backwards. And today, there are many people in this very room that are doing that exact same thing. God's Holy Spirit is pleading and wooing and trying and convicting and calling. And you are dragging your heels to that voice, but to the other voice from the world and unchristian friends and violent, vulgar ways, sensual ways, sexually immoral ways, pleasure-seeking ways, calling you from the abyss of hell. And you're quick. You're there. You submit to that. Your whole world's inside out. Once you taste the forbidden fruit and you go after that, you can't tell which way is up anymore. You're insane. Because you've resisted the truth and you've received the lie. Now how can you navigate your life? You can't. Barb has a relative who was in the ministry and divorced his wife, but first was having multiple affairs. Then he ended up divorcing her after he got caught. Now, having resisted God and submitted to the devil, the church is narrow-minded and filled with hypocrites, God's word isn't correctly translated. And we Christians are making it say something that it really isn't saying. And now suddenly, the mistress, the godless mistress, and his beer-guzzling buddies are the good guys. And the Christian family that loves him for 30, 40, 55 plus years are all evil. They're the bad guys. It's how it goes. Watch out when you resist God and submit to the evil one. You will get crazy. You will not know. The Pharisees have the second person of the Godhead standing this close. The maker of heaven and earth, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is in every way the exact representation of God himself. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is God in a body. And they look at him because they resist God and submit to the evil one. They look at him and say, devil. And Jesus said, whoa, careful. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to be so upside down that you can no longer, you could look at God's face and say, devil, you're that gone that the Holy Spirit can't even talk to you. The Holy Spirit has revealed to you the truth and you've rejected it. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, there's no hope for somebody like that. Do not resist light and truth and God. And submit to dark 
and the evil because you will get crazy. And when you get crazy, there's no talking to you. And if there's no talking to you, there's no lifeline to you. And if there's no lifeline to you, you haven't got a chance. Submit to God. Resist the bad guy. All he's saying there is tap out, cry uncle, wave the white flag, bow the knee. That's all he's saying. God loves you. Submit to him. Now, the second part is to resist the bad guy. To set your will, the word resist there means to set your will against him, to oppose, to withstand, to remain unmoved. The whole point of Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul's chained to a Roman guard, he's got a lot of time on his hands. He goes, wow, you know what? I can think of the Christian disciplines quite like every piece of your armor. And he wrote to the Ephesians about it in chapter 6. He says, wow. Uh, salvation is like a helmet. It keeps your mind from lies and falsehoods. And faith is like a shield that protects the vital organs. And, and truth, the truth of God is the buckle that holds the whole thing up together. And he goes on, but the point of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 is this. To stand, to stand, to stand against. That's the whole point is what James is saying. Resist him. Stand your ground with a simple no. Whatever power the devil has, whatever influence the demons can wield against the believer, the Holy Spirit, through God's grace, can enable you to successfully resist every time Anytime, in all situations, with a simple resisting will of one word, no. He says it'll work every time. You're saying no, of course, after you've said yes to God. People forget that. It's not the no that makes Satan run like a little scared schoolgirl away from you. It's that you said yes, and now you are completely yielded to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of that yieldedness and not your ability to say no is what we'll bring. Yes, we need you to say no, but you're not earning anything by saying no. You're just giving God the opportunity to do his thing. The word to flee is fuego in the Greek. It means to run for your life. Now, uh, he's saying, look, when you say no to the devil because you're submitted to God and you, you belong to him, he's going to arch his back in fear like a scared cat that just caught a really good glimpse of a crazed Rottweiler. He's going to take off. Is that not amazing? Lucifer afraid of you. Just because you bend your knee and that impulse comes up. Now, James already told you the impulse is in you. You're already wired. You're hardwired in your sinful nature to do everything evil. You don't need the help of the devil, but the devil is an exploiter. And so he knows your weakness. He knows you're prone to wander. And so in your weakness and in your thinking and in your moral failures, he exploits that. In other words, he takes advantage of the fact that you are prone to sin. So he says, resist him. Say no. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the one who lived in the 1500s, the reformer, Tells a story in his writings of, uh, you've heard this, is very famous. He awoke at 3 a.m. with a sickening presence of evil in his bedroom. He had a vision of the devil at his, uh, the end of his bed there, a frightening shadow just seething at the foot of his bed. And Martin Luther wakes up with a start and he feels like the Holy Spirit aroused him and he sat up in his bed and he saw his face and felt the evil presence and he said, oh, 
It's only you. And he rolled over and went back to sleep. Martin Luther is the one who wrote in 1528, the mighty fortress is our God. And though this world, from one of his stanzas, with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall destroy him. What's the one little word? (laughs) No. One word. No. I have lived my entire Christian life with taking good advantage of that verse. And when I get prompted and I get tempted... In any way, shape, or form. What a wonderful, marvelous privilege and tool that has been so fruitful in my life. I say it out loud. I'll say it over and over again. I think it. I feel it. I say it. One word. No. Sometimes I even laugh at how ridiculous it is. I was telling somebody about temptation. You know, I was tempted... To drink. I don't like to drink. I don't like anything about it. I, I don't want to do it. And, and I was tempted in my mind. This is years ago at Bible college. And, and, and people were having parties. And, and the thought just went through my mind. Go out to the parties. They're with your friends. And I thought, well, wait a second. I don't even like it. I mean, he stops at nothing. He tempts you in your weakness. And then he tries, uh, hey... We haven't tried this one before. How about that? Will you go for that? The same word works whether it's your besetting sin or no. No. And God says he'll run away for his life. The grace of God, listen to this, because Christians get the grace of God all wrong. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When a Christian today hears the word grace, they just think, oh, it's not so bad. I can be kind of careless. It's God's grace. But true biblical grace rooted in the scripture says the true grace of God teaches us to say no to worldly passions that rage in our own hearts. That's all James is saying. All you got to do is say yes to him and no to the bad guy. And it's going to be smooth sailing. Couplet number two on our way to humility. Come near and wash up. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Take a step toward him and he'll take a step toward you. What a wonderful invitation and promise. It's two things, isn't it? It's an invite and it's a promise. You do this, I'll do that. Now, first of all, generally speaking, God is the initiator. We can do nothing, Jesus said, without him. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, John tells us again in his epistle, his first epistle, it's not that we love God, it's that God loved us first. We were dead in our sins. God is the one who calls us and justifies us and sanctifies us and predestines us and glorifies us, Romans chapter 8. So in the general understanding of how things work salvifically when it comes to being saved, God takes the first step. Relationally and experientially with him, for some reason, in some circumstances, in seasons of your life, he says, ball on your side of the court. Your turn. Of course, it will be his grace that will help us to return the ball. But he says, you first, then me. And man says, you know what, God? When you part the River Jordan, then we'll step in. But God said, priests, I want you to take faith, as we were talking about in Joshua, where we are midweek study. Joshua chapter 3 and 4, they crossed in the Jordan. The Lord says, step out in faith, step into the Jordan, it'll part. 
We say, no, part the waters. I don't want to get wet. I don't want to jump in. You know, you part the waters, then I'll step in. He said, no, excuse me. I made you. You didn't make me. You are created thing. I am creator. We need to get that right. So James says, uh, take a step toward him anytime you're ready, and he'll take a step toward you. Why do I got to be the one who do it? If you want me so bad, we'll just wait until we hit rock bottom, and then we'll just make him do everything he says it's not. You know what? You're going to go straight off the cliffs. Well, then that's your fault, God. No, it isn't. I said to you, commandment, come toward me, I will come toward you. And I'll give you the grace to do that. But he's really, really serious. And so we take a step. Uh, I'm not much for church marquees. I usually get embarrassed when I drive by them because it's so corny, honestly, in my humble opinion. (laughs) I know, if the second I put one out, you know, it's going to be the corniest thing you've ever heard. (laughs) However, I saw one that I liked. You might think it's corny, I don't know, but if God feels distant, who moved? I was like, bingo. You want to get closer? Come closer, and I promise you, I'll make it worth your while. James is not kidding around. A few halting, faltering steps in the right direction will bring a father traveling at the speed of sound. Uh, You remember Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son? What had to happen there? Well, he comes to his own senses. Where? Starving to death in a pig pen estranged from his father and all the comforts of home. And what happens? He turns, and he takes a few steps, come near to God, and what happens? Before that kid is halfway home, the father running to him. James is not kidding around here. It sounds like, oh, you take a step, and God will take a step. Ah, uh-uh, no. It's a lot better than that. You... Take a half a step. You think about taking a step. The second you start to move and turn, God is on you like ugly on a toad. (laughs) Oh, I just love spontaneity. It's a a real gift. (laughs) God will be on you. What does the paraphrase say? He says, the prodigal son says, what an idiot I've been. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. Oh, this story always gets me. (laughs) I'll set out and I will say to my father, I will go back to him and say, father, I have sinned. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you and against heaven. And his father just interrupts him because he took a step. Just a step. Now I get eternal life because I just stopped destroying myself and just turned and said, not even for noble reasons. He didn't sit there and go, oh, my poor mama. Oh, my poor father, the tears in his eyes, the pain in his heart, the dagger in his heart. I look at him and said, oh, man, I wish you were dead. You mean nothing to me. I spit on you. Give me the money. He didn't sit there in the pig pen and go, what a wretch I am. He said, I'm hungry. The slaves at home are better off than me. What an idiot. Because of that, I'll go back. And the father says, that's okay. No matter how you got back in the house, safe and sound is fine with me. There's not a noble cell in your body anyway. We think, oh, we came for the noble reason. God goes, of course you did. (laughs) 
the second part of that is wash up. And you know, folks, I'm really glad for one that he says, come to, uh, come near to God and he will come near to you. Then he says, wash up. Oh, I'm really glad that it wasn't wash up and then come because I can't do the job. So he says, you come to me, I'll wash you up, kid. I want you to cooperate with me. I want you to not be filthy because I'm holy and moral and, and it's very hard to have a relationship when you're holy and moral and pure and you want to cling to defiled things. So yeah, you've got to wash up to be one of my kids. You've got to leave the pig pen. Now, if the kid kept saying, on the road, the prodigal, but you know there's something about... Uh, a hot summer day with the pig pen and the, the, the warm wind blowing, and I just, oh. You know, Father, I love you and prime rib that you're preparing, and that barbecue smells good, but you smell that pig pen? Oh, there's something homey about it. Not going to work. That's what James is saying. Not going to work. Make up your mind. You're double-minded. Pig pen or dad's house. You can't have both. Choose. You can have either one. He says it's a free country. And you're a free human being. Choose one. So you got to wash up. Um, letting the Lord cleanse you, kind of, uh, it's humbling. If you've ever had to be bathed as an adult, as I have, because I was on my deathbed for a few months. 63 days in a hospital, UCSF. It's very humbling to be bathed. That's why we don't want to do it. It's intimate, and you're helpless, and you're dirty. Got, that's why Peter said, when Jesus got the towel around him in the wash bucket, and said, take your sandals off and let me see your toenails and your dirt. And Peter said, no way are you washing my feet. And Jesus said, oh, that's too bad, because we can't be friends unless I wash your feet. In fact, I won't have anything to do with you unless I clean you. And Peter said, Oh, then, give me a whole bath that duck me in the river and wash me from the top and shampoo, set, and shine. <laughs> and Jesus says, pal, look, you're saved. You're generally clean. You know me. All you need, once you know the Lord, is to clean your feet. Let me clean your feet, your dirty feet. Where you travel around, you pick up a lot of dirt out there, just make sure you allow me to clean your feet. And he said, I will. And Judas said, I'll play the game. Go ahead and clean my feet. But since I have not submitted to God and resisted the evil one, in fact, I've got it the opposite, you can wash the outside of my feet in a show that I look and sound and act just like everyone else at the table. But in my heart, it's defiled and filthy. That's what James says. Come near to God. Wash your hands. Let him clean up your hands and your heart are mentioned outward deeds, inward thoughts and motivations. They go together. Last couplet. Grieve and change. So here's the paraphrase. James takes a look at their <laughs> pathetic congregations and says, here's a paraphrase. Shouldn't you guys be feeling badly? Instead of uh, thinking everything is a joke, your heart should be grieved, sad at your present state. Instead of cutting up in laughter, you should be breaking down in tears, don't you think? So neither James, nor Jesus, nor anybody else in the entire Bible is a killjoy. And I love this quote. Sour puss and ultra-serious Christians who don't know how to laugh and enjoy life cannot fully know the Jesus whose mission statement read, 
I have come to give you joy and that your joy be full and complete. There's nothing holy about being serious and sober all the time. And oh no, I can't laugh and have a good time. It's unholy. And folks, we pass through years and generations of people who thought that. That's not true. But that said, our joy and laughter needs to be fun and that's clean and in keeping with fellowship with the Holy God. Psalm 16, verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You want to see a party thrown? When God comes back through Christ Jesus our Lord and overthrows the world, you should see the kind of party. But listen to this. Nothing unclean will ever enter through the gates of the celestial city. That's a quote from the book of Revelation. Nothing unclean. Lots of joy, but it's clean joy. So he's saying, you know, um, he's not coming against laughter that's good and right and God-given, but he's coming against that cynical, kind of mocking, smug, mischievous, smirking, godless cackling of the unsaved it's like, you know, you're flipping the channels and you see the comedy clubs where you want to laugh. It looks like a lot of fun, but everybody's drunk and they're making the most vulgar and vile jokes. You're like, and everybody throwing their heads back and belly laughing. And you're like, whoa, grieved city. God, this, Jesus, that, ha, 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 laughing. James is saying, oh, Oh, that, no, it's time to be crying. That needs to change. Because how can you ever come to know God in repentance if you think it's a joke and you don't feel motivated? So he says, you, you need to change the party thing into get a real good glimpse of the pain you've caused, the frustration, how, how shameful and, and off you are in relationship to God. And let that, it's called godly sorrow, it'll lead you to repentance. It's just not feeling bad for feeling bad's sake. It's feeling bad so that God can restore to you the joy of your salvation. It's called godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. It leaves no regret. You won't be (laughs) sad too long. Your weeping will be turned to laughing and joy. Your mourning to dancing. Um, uh, Peter found that out. He denied the Lord. He went out. He wept bitterly. And then he picked himself back up. The Lord reconciled him. And it was a godly sorrow. Judas, uh, a lot of tears. It said he wept bitterly. He even threw back the money at the priest and said, I don't want these 30 pieces of silver. I've betrayed an innocent man. They said, who cares about that? That's none of our business. Deal with it yourself. He was upset that he got caught. He didn't care about the Lord. (laughs) He cared that he was now entering some uh, painful consequences. That's all he cared about. That is worldly sorrow and it leads nowhere but to death. So you may have the tears. That's all about your heart. Godly sorrow says, I'm going to turn and change and stop that. Not to buy a reprieve until the next time you can indulge yourself. You didn't repent. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have ongoing issues with besetting sins especially. But I'm saying, you know in your own heart, did you turn because you're really sorrow about grieving the Lord's heart? Or are you just buying more time and playing a game? James is saying, just make it real. Uh, Grief and remorse will help you get to that humble place, and then God will pick you up. Now, when he says, humble yourself, last verse he says, so humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, right? So the word humble, we don't like it, but it can't be that bad. 
You know why? Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Godhead, he says this. Come to me, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and, same word, lowly, King James Version, NIV, humble in heart. It's the same word here. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So if you're like put off by needing to be what the word means, not far off the ground, that's what the word means, humble. If you're like, "Ah, I don't really don't want to do that. Jesus said, why don't you be like me? (laughs) I'm the God of glory. And I I had no problem about it. I I just liked it down there. It was fine. And when you're there, the Father lifts you up. When you cast yourself at the feet of the Father, he looks down, stoops, and he picks you up into his arms, and he will lift you up. There's your joy. There's your healing. There's your peace. There's everything you need in the safety of your Father's arms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. We are all battling pride and self-importance and wanting to be seen and praised and adored. We do think ourselves better than everybody else at times. And you oppose that. God, we really don't want you to be opposed to us. So, Father, we just rightfully confess every day, every morning, we start out on our knees saying, we are nothing. We are sinners. We are saved by grace. We bring nothing to the table but pain and suffering and moral failure. And then you use us, give us gifts and joy, and we accomplish things. And then, then our, the good things about us make sense, and you can use it. So, Father, we just yield our hearts to you and just pray that the truth of James' words, your word, would uh, change our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 